message this morning from John chapter 14. Good morning for those of you I don't know. My name is Charlie Dunn, and it's wonderful to get to worship with you either here in person uh, or if you're joining us online as well. Um, And yet imagine with me that in just a moment I were to leave. I were to walk out one of these center aisles. I were to go to the back door and turn around and wave to everybody and say, come on, meet me there. Come on, meet me there. And in that moment, I imagine if I just walked out the door and said that to everyone, you would respond in one of two ways. Either you would think to yourself, did I miss something? Did he say where he was going and I just blanked out at the beginning of the sermon and somehow missed that? Or you'll think to yourself, this guy's nuts. I'm I'm certainly going to leave, but I'm not going anywhere close to where he might be going. Come on, meet me there. And yet, in a way, isn't that the context that leads into this most extraordinary claim that Jesus makes about himself in the passage Walker read for us a moment ago? Jesus looks at his disciples. He says to them, you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas raises his hand, maybe boldly, maybe sheepishly, but he asks the question. He says, Lord, we don't even know where you're going, so how can we know the way to get there? And, you know, Thomas gets something of a bad rap. In Christian history, you know, he's sometimes known as Doubting Thomas. Maybe you've heard that before because he was one of the last disciples to be persuaded and convinced that Jesus was really bodily risen from the dead. I feel like I relate a lot with Thomas. I feel like he gets a bad rap. I think this is a pretty reasonable question that he's asking here. And for the sake of the amazing answer that Jesus gives to his question, aren't you glad that Thomas asked his question? Lord, we don't even know where you're going. How can we know the way? Some of you might have grown up in families or in churches where you didn't feel like you could freely ask questions. Maybe you felt like you couldn't really express doubts. You needed to just kind of blindly accept authority. Or if you were to raise doubts in in your church, maybe it felt as if you were somehow unfaithful. But can I say to you this morning that a faith that is never questioned is like a body with no antibodies. And in the midst of COVID-19, we know the value of antibodies, don't we? A faith that is unquestioned is like a body without antibodies. It's vulnerable. So that the moment that somebody comes into your life, maybe, and they ask a really hard question about your faith you've never thought about before, Or maybe you go through a really difficult life tragedy. Or perhaps you just meet somebody and they're wonderful. They're a wonderful person, but they just don't believe any of the things that you do about God or Jesus. When that moment comes, either you're going to find that you're defenseless or you're going to get very defensive. Either you're going to be defenseless, you're not going to know how do I respond, or you're going to get very defensive in a way that's not really consistent with with wanting to be a good, winsome representative for Jesus. And you see, the Bible is pretty nuanced, but when it comes to doubt, when it comes to questions, the Bible has a pretty complex approach to doubt. On the one hand, the Bible does not Uh, celebrate doubt as if it were virtue. You know, it's always good to be skeptical, always good to be cynical, never arriving at a place of any conviction in your life. The Bible doesn't praise doubt as a virtue, nor, though, does the Bible demonize doubt as if it were unfaithful. 
You see the disciples of Jesus, they're constantly expressing their doubts and their questions. Doubt is neutral. Behind every doubt is an equal and opposite belief. And of course, you want to examine your beliefs. You want to examine your doubts. And how does Jesus respond when Thomas raises his hand, when he asks his question? Does the floor open up underneath Thomas and he just goes right through it? You know, thanks for playing, Thomas. You better not question Jesus again. No. Jesus answers his question. He provides this response to him. And, you know, I was meeting with a, a friend of mine this last week who was telling me, he said, you know, my, my wife and I, we, we're, we're really excited to come and, and visit this new church community. He said, I'll be honest with you, I, I'm not actually sure that I'm totally convinced about all these things about who Jesus is, but I want to be a part of a community where I can ask the questions where I can express my, my doubts without feeling like I'm going to be condemned or judged, where we can wrestle together with some of life's biggest questions. And so one of my big hopes for this church, I probably haven't said this enough over our last, you know, maybe two months of gathering together, we want to be a church for both the convinced and for the unconvinced, both for skeptics and for believers. Can we create a space like that? Is that possible, where we could have a, a community where you really can ask your questions, where you really can bring your doubts? Thomas raises his hand, and he asks his question, and Jesus gives him his answer. And yet, for us, living in the 21st century, maybe in the most globalized moment the world has ever known, you know, through technology and travel, the world is closer together than it's ever been. Maybe some of you could just look down your street and you could say, yep, I've got a neighbor who's Buddhist, or I've got a neighbor who's Jewish, or I have a neighbor who is agnostic or atheist. You know, all these different beliefs brought so close together, maybe in your workplace, maybe on your own street. And in this particular moment, Thomas asks his question, Jesus gives his answer. But for us, doesn't Jesus' answer actually create more questions? Doesn't it prompt more questions for us when Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life? Nobody comes to the Father except through me. I think that raises a number of questions for us, at least if we're willing to be honest. Questions like, hang on a second. I mean, there are billions, seven billion people in the world. Billions of them do not believe in Jesus. They're not Christians. There are so many other world religions and belief systems. Is it really even reasonable? Is it even plausible if you are really a thinking person to believe that, that Jesus, that Christianity is actually the only way to God, is that a reasonable perspective to have? Moreover, is it even kind? I mean, if you believe that your religion is the only true way to get to God, isn't that going to make you an arrogant jerk? Somebody who is, is, is judgmental? You always feel superior to the people who don't share the same beliefs as you. Might you even use that to justify engaging in, in oppression or violence? I mean, look at the Crusades. Look at Islamic Jihad if you need some examples. Or, or maybe closer to home, you ask the question, you say, well, well hang on a second. I've, I've got this, this really good friend. Or I've got a family member. Or I have a neighbor, and, and they don't believe in Jesus. They don't trust him as the only way to God. Maybe they're agnostic. Maybe they're another religion. 
Are you saying that they're out? That if they don't trust in Jesus, that they're on their way to hell, that they're going to be eternally lost because they haven't come in through Jesus? You know, maybe, for instance, for the sake of argument, you know, you know somebody who's a, a doctor and they're such a great person and maybe they're unsure what they believe about God. They're agnostic. But they are sure they want to help people. And so maybe he, he gives up his, his lucrative practice in the United States. And maybe he travels to South Sudan. He joins Doctors Without Borders just to help and care for people who are sick. Are you saying that guy is out? That guy's not going to heaven to be with God because he hasn't trusted in Jesus? Do you see the kinds of, of questions this claim raises for us? And I'll tell you something that actually makes this more complicated, especially if you believe it's true, or if you're at least somebody who is seeking to follow Jesus. Part of what makes this more complicated is the very guy who's making this exclusive claim, nobody comes to the Father except through me, is probably the most inclusively loving person who has ever lived. And you know, Jesus' skeptics, even Jesus' critics, often recognize this to be true about him. I mean, you look at the life of Jesus. Has there ever been anybody who was more inclusive in the way that he went about living his life? So, for instance, the people who were the social outcasts of his day, the lepers, nobody wanted anything to do with lepers. They had this, this skin disease. Jesus touched them. He moved toward them. He welcomed them into his life. Social outcasts, moral outcasts, prostitutes, tax collectors, those who were in cahoots with the oppressive Roman government. Jesus would go to their homes. He would have dinner with them. He would engage with them. Moral outcasts, then certainly racial outcasts. You know, the Jews hated the Samaritans. They saw them as less than human. Jesus was talking with them, engaging with them, drawing them into his life. Racial outcasts, and then certainly those who were marginalized, the poor, but women, Jesus empowered, he lifted up women, children, he welcomed in children. Has there ever been anyone who lived a more lovingly inclusive life than Jesus? And so it raises these questions for us. And I think the big question for us today that I want to try to tackle together then is how do we honor Jesus's words? How do we honor his exclusive words and yet do so in Jesus' inclusive way. How do we embrace Jesus' exclusive claims and yet embody his inclusive way of relating with other people? How do we honor Jesus' words and yet do so in Jesus' way? So that'll be our outline for this morning. So let's walk through those two questions together. So first, how do you honor Jesus' words, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Can I tell you how you don't honor Jesus' words? One of the best ways not to honor Jesus' words is to essentially change his words, to adapt his words, to compromise his words, to, to think maybe, maybe that's not exactly what he meant. 
Maybe what he really meant was Jesus is, is the only way for Christians, but really there are other ways for people of other religions. There are ways for Buddhists or ways for, for Muslims or ways for agnostics. Maybe he's saying I'm the only way for Christians. And I think a lot of people change his words in that way out of good intentions. They say, look, you know, I don't want to offend my, my non-believing neighbors or neighbors of other religions, and frankly, Christians can be offensive enough as it is, right? Can I get an amen to that? So, so I don't want to offend people, so let me, let me just kind of change his words to make them more palatable. Maybe there are multiple ways, and Jesus is just the way for Christians. You know, or what you do is you kind of flatten out all the world's religions, and you say, you know, all the different religions, aren't they all just equally different ways to get to the same God? I mean, after all, don't they really boil down to the same thing? I mean, there's a God who's loving. We should treat our neighbors as we want to be treated. Love your neighbor as yourself, the golden rule. I mean, aren't all religions essentially, at the end of the day, really teaching the same thing? And I'll tell you, though, if you take that approach... If you try to change Jesus' words in that way, not only do you dishonor Jesus, whom you might claim to be seeking to honor as your Lord, not only do you dishonor Jesus, but you actually dishonor all the other world religions. You dishonor all the other people who embrace and believe the other world religions. You know, I remember when I was in college, um, I was a part of a group on campus um, sometimes called the Interfaith Council. It was an interfaith lunch. You know, different universities have things similar to this. And essentially, what it was is, you know, you would gather with with students from other religious groups on campus, so Buddhists and Hindus and Muslims, and there were even folks from the, the free thinking atheist society who were there as well. And you know, lunch was pretty good. It was free. And I thought the conversation was pretty interesting. So I, I sometimes would go and be a part of this discussion. And I'll tell you, when we all got together for these meetings, there were some things we could all agree upon. Here, here's what they were. We could all agree that it was a good thing for the university to allow us all to meet and to gather on campus, that we should be free to be able to do so. In fact, we even agreed that we should be able to talk to each other to try to convince, even to persuade each other that there should be sort of a free marketplace of ideas and that if you believe that your religion was true, it was okay to try to persuade other people to believe that too. I remember when I was in college at that same time, I actually had a roommate um, at one point. His name was also Charlie, and uh, he was an atheist. I mean, in many ways, we couldn't have been more different, but um, he, he told me once, he said, you know, Charlie, if you really believe that Jesus is the only way to God, the only way to eternal life with God, if you really believe that, and yet you would never try to talk to me about Jesus, you would never try to turn a conversation toward God, he said, I would think to myself, how much does this guy have to hate me? I mean, how much does, does this guy, how selfish does he have to be if he really believes that that's true? not to want to talk to me about Jesus, not to want to share that with me because after all, he believes that that's, that's where eternal life is found. And I think all of these groups, we, we had this shared understanding that of course, of course if you believe something to be true, you're going to want to share it with other people, even if they might believe differently from you, even in spite of that fear. Maybe I'm going to offend them. Maybe I'm going to make it uncomfortable. So there was an agreement around that, and then there was an agreement that we should encourage our fellow students to answer and wrestle with some of life's big questions, to engage those questions. So we could agree on all of that. 
But you know what we did not agree upon? What we certainly didn't agree upon? We agreed that we should all be asking the questions. But we didn't agree on the answers. I mean, not at all. I mean, Buddhists believe that that God is a a life force who permeates everything in the universe. You know, kind of like Star Wars or uh, Avatar or Dances with Wolves or Pocahontas, kind of more that that perspective. Buddhists believe God was a life force. Hindus believe there are thousands of gods or at least thousands of aspects of God in the way that you you, you reach nirvana is through reincarnation and through, through karma, very different beliefs. And certainly Muslims believe that there is one God, but they said for God to die on a cross... I mean, nothing could be more humiliating. There's no way that God would die on a cross. Jews said, yes, we believe in the same God of the Bible, but we do not believe that Jesus is God come in the flesh, that he is the son of God. We could agree on many of the questions, but don't you see we had very different answers? Very different answers about what is true about who God is or how we can be saved and restored to him. You know, I, I've never seen this interview. I learned about this from, from a guy named Phil Riken, but he said there used to be this show called The Dick Evitt Show. I don't know if any of you um, are, were around to remember that, but apparently the Archbishop of Canterbury sat down with Jane Fonda, uh, the actress, and they were on this show together. And during the show, the Archbishop said, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Jane Fonda said, well, maybe he is for you, but he's not for me. To which the archbishop responded, he said, hang on a second, no, 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 either he is or he isn't. That's like saying 2 plus 2 equals 4 or 5 or 37. There's laws of non-contradiction. Two contradicting things can't both be true at the very same time. And you see then, for us to say that, well, maybe Jesus is just sort of one way among many to get to God, we not only dishonor Jesus and his words, but we dishonor all the other world religions and those who adhere to them. And you see, the thing about Jesus, if you read through the Gospels, one of the things you're going to find is that Jesus is always pushing people to the extremes. He always is pushing people to have to come to a conclusion, to have to respond to who they really believe him to be. Jesus is never content with people to say, you know, I'm kind of interested in you. I kind of like you, but that's about as far as it goes. I don't really know what I believe about you. He's wanting to push people to the extremes. He says, either you can embrace me or you can reject me. Either you can adore me or you can abhor me. You can certainly explore me. You can investigate. You can ask questions. You can find out, is he really who he claims to be? But he says, the one thing you can't do is simply like me and ignore me. Or simply look at me as one option among many. He does not leave that open to us. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. In fact, he even goes a step further, doesn't he? Here in this passage, he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. For I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you have seen God. So first off, if you want to honor Jesus' words, you you do so by actually taking him at his word and not trying to change them or make them into something other than what he actually says. But then secondly, how do we honor Jesus' words, but how can we do so in Jesus' way? His way that is so loving, 
That is so welcoming. That is so inclusive to so many different kinds of people, people who might believe so differently from us. I was talking to a friend about this this week. He's a, he's a genuine follower of Jesus. He's been walking with Jesus for years. And, and, and this is somebody, he said, you know, what's hard about this is that, is that I believe Jesus is the truth. That's what he says about himself, right? I am the truth. I'm the standard. I'm the definition of what is true. And so he says, in my life, I'm often trying to filter, you know, what I believe about various different things through the lens of Jesus. How does this align with the teaching of Jesus? He's the truth. He says, that's what I believe, but it makes it hard for me sometimes to really build bridges, to build relationships with people who believe very differently from me. I tend to just stick with the people who share those same beliefs. How can I become a more inclusive person in Jesus's way, even as I affirm Jesus's claims? And I think for a lot of us, that's the challenge, isn't it? And for many people who hear this claim of Jesus, I think here's really where the rub may be. For many people who hear Jesus say he's the only way to God, they may say, look, look, I, I don't know if, if all religions are equally true, I don't know about all the, the reasoning and the logic and the laws of non-contradiction. Frankly, I don't even know what these other religions even believe or teach. But what I do feel, I just have this intuition, I just have this sense that if you believe that your religion is the only way to God, you're going to be an arrogant jerk. You're, you're going to be somebody who comes across as, as judgmental. Somebody who feels like you are superior to other people. And again, it might even lead to oppression and to violence. And so I don't really know about all the other religions. I just know that's not the kind of person I want to be. I don't want to be an arrogant jerk. I want to be inclusive. I want to be loving. And so therefore, I'm just going to kind of disregard this claim of Jesus. So, so what do we do with that? You know, how would you respond to that? Let's see how we might respond together. So I think first off, if somebody says, hey, if you're, if you're a religious person, your religion, if you believe your religion is the only way to God, that might make you an arrogant jerk. I, th I think we probably ought to say amen, right? Like that, that is true. Like we, we see that all the time. In fact, one of the things we said a couple of months ago when we were just getting started together, we said when we talk about religion, when we use that word religion here at, at Grace Lake Highlands, we're going to use it with a negative connotation. We're going to use it in a negative way. Why? Because Jesus uses it in a negative way. Jesus is always critiquing. He's always challenging the religious leaders of his day. Those are the people he actually goes after most harshly, more than anyone else. Because typically what religion says is, if I live a good life, if I do all of these things in the way God wants me to do them, and I pray, and I go to church, and I give to the poor, and, and I believe these right things, then God is going to love me then God is going to be really pleased and happy with me. And if you believe that, if that's your religious assumption, that you are saved, you're loved by God because of these good things that you do, is that going to make you feel superior to people who don't do those same things? Absolutely. Absolutely. You're going to, you're going to judge, you're going to look down on people who aren't doing those things. In fact, part of what feeds your sense of confidence that God does love you and accept you is by comparing yourself with those other people and feeling like, look how much better I'm doing things than they are. So can religion turn you into somebody who feels superior to others, essentially an arrogant jerk? Yes. But you see, here's the other side, and I think this is sometimes overlooked. Can non-religion 
can being a secular person, somebody who says, can you believe those idiots who believe that their religion is the only way to God? Can, can you believe those people who believe that they have somehow a monopoly on truth? How foolish of them to believe that. Can, can being a non-religious person who says, of course, if there is a way to God, there are lots of different ways to get there. Can that turn you into someone who's arrogant and, and who feels superior to other people who don't share that same belief? Absolutely. It absolutely can. In fact, a few weeks ago, some of you might remember, John gave a great sermon on Jesus being the light of the world, and he referred to the story of the blind men and the elephant. Anybody remember that? He talked about these, these blind men who, who all come up and touch different parts of the elephant, and they conclude that the elephant is like different things because they all touch a different part, and that story is often used to teach the moral that that's God, right? And that's the world religions. We all touch a different part of God, but we don't see the whole. And so each, each religion only sees part of God, but not the whole. But in order to tell that story, what has to be true about the narrator? They have to be able to see. Right? The narrator is saying, I'm not blind. Everybody else is blind, but I'm not blind. Nobody else can have superior knowledge about God, but I have the very superior knowledge about God that I'm saying nobody else has. So, so Ken being a non-religious person who says, well, well, surely if there is a God, there are lots of ways to get to God. Can that make you an arrogant person towards those, the billions of people in the world who do not share that belief, who believe that their religion actually is the only way to God? Absolutely it can. In fact, if that belief um, leads you to keep people from expressing their beliefs, from being able to really freely share their beliefs, actually it can lead to oppression as well. And so what do we do with this? You know, religion can make you an arrogant jerk. Non-religion can make you an arrogant jerk. So where does that leave us this morning if we want to walk out of here not as arrogant jerks? So, and, and I think here's what's so amazing about Jesus and his message of good news, which we call the gospel, is that within the gospel, um, there are resources within the gospel itself that ought to make us some of the most humble and inclusive people. Resources within the very message of Jesus himself. And you know, I've been so helped in seeing this by Tim Keller and the way that he talks about how all the other religious teachers who've ever come along, what do they say? They say, let me show you the way to get to God. Here are the things you have to do. Here's the teaching. Here's the way for you to get to God. What does Jesus say? He says, I am the way. I am the way. Jesus doesn't say, hey, here's all of the, the, the steps that you need to take. Here's the mountain of righteousness you need to climb. He says, no, I've come to climb that mountain for you. I haven't come to say, hey, here's the kind of life you need to live. Here's the death you need to die. He says, no, I've come to live and to die for you in your place. All you have to do is receive me. Trust in me. Rest in me. Embrace me. Now, some of you might say, well, hang on a sec, still, what, what about that really good doctor who goes over to Sudan with Doctors Without Borders? Or what about that family member who, who doesn't believe in Jesus? If they're a really good person, what about them? Are you saying they're on the outs with God? And, and yet, when we ask that question, when we say, what about that, that really good person? Don't you, don't you know there's, there's actually a faulty assumption in that question, because we, 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 we use that word good, but good is a relative term. 
Good is a, a term of, of comparison. Yeah, sure, they may be good compared to other people, absolutely. But what about compared to God? God who is holy, God who is just, God who is pure, God who, who, who always does everything right, the Bible says, in what he does. What about in comparison with him? And I'll tell you this, even for people who've never heard of Jesus, even for people who've never heard of the Bible, people who don't know the Ten Commandments, all of us have standards for how we want other people to live. Things that we expect of other people when they don't live up to them, we get pretty angry over that. And yet none of us, none of us live up to our own standards, even our standards for other people. None of us is good. Nobody is righteous, not at least in comparison with God. The Bible says there's no one who is righteous, not even one. The problem with that question, what about the good people, is that there's no one who is truly good. And then the other problem is what about those who are bad? What about the bad people? Is there no mercy? Is there no forgiveness? Is there no grace? You see, I just want to be a good person, teach my kids to be a good people. That's great. But what about when you or your kids don't live up to your hopes for them? To your expectation of who you hoped that they would be or who you hoped you would be, maybe in a profound way. And that's a pretty good definition, by the way, of shame. And all of us feel shame and Ultimately, it's not something that you can just push away. We have that, that shame inside, and yet Jesus, Jesus is so unique because his message is a message of grace. Jesus came to, to speak this message of grace. Jesus says the way that you get into God, it's actually the most inclusive exclusivity because he says you, you, you get in not because you're better, no matter who you are, no matter what you have done, no matter whether you are, are upper class or low class or you have no class, no matter if, if you've been to grade school or grad school, black, white, Hispanic, Asian, he says it does not matter who you are. The only qualification is to admit that you're not qualified. The only fitness is to say, I'm not fit, and to trust in what Jesus has done to make you fit for the kingdom through his grace for you. And you see, those who humble themselves to admit that and to receive that are in, but those who are proud and won't admit that are out. It's this message of, of, of grace. And Christians, can I tell you, if you really believe that's true, if you really believe that God loves you, that he accepts you, not because of anything you've done or anything in you, it is solely on the basis of his grace. Don't you see why that ought to make you one of the most humble inclusive, loving sorts of, of people toward those who don't share your beliefs, those who live very differently from you. And if that's not happening, if your heart feels proud and judgmental and superior to people who don't share your beliefs, it's because you're not believing the gospel. You're not really believing that you are saved completely by grace. And that message needs to make its way down further into our hearts. And so we honor Jesus' words by not changing his words, but we do so in Jesus' way by, by bringing into our hearts this message of his grace. And I remember getting to see this lived out. Um, a couple of years ago, a guy gave me a phone call, a friend of mine, he said, hey, I want to invite you to something. It's something I'd never been invited to before. He said, I, I want to invite you um, to this party. 
Because, you see, I've got a friend of mine who was not a Christian. He was an atheist for a number of years. He grew up an atheist. And, and frankly, he used to get really annoyed and bothered when I would talk to him about Jesus. But he said uh, he actually read a book, Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God. And it actually answered a lot of his questions. It dealt with a lot of his objections. And, and he found himself drawn toward God. And actually, he became a Christian. He put his trust in Jesus. But here's the thing. All of his family and all of his friends, they think he's an idiot. They think, I mean, this is the stupidest thing you've ever done to trust in Jesus. They're all, you know, kind of giving him a hard time for this. So he said, what I want to do is I want to throw a party. And I want to invite a bunch of other Christians to be there and to celebrate the fact that this guy has trusted in Jesus, that he's entering into the kingdom of God. Do you want to come? I was like, yes, of course, I want to come. And so I went, and it was so cool, because this guy shared his testimony, and he talked about how this friend of his, he said, it really used to annoy me when he would talk to me about Jesus. It really did. He said, but, but here's the thing. He was like the best friend I had. He loved me. He cared about me. He was always checking in on me. He wanted to spend time with me. I knew that it, it, was, it was a genuine love that he had for me. And I loved hearing that because it was just such a great picture of how can you, you can affirm Jesus' claims. You think he is the only way to God. I want to tell people about him, but to do so in a loving and humble and inclusive sort of way. Uh, let, me, let me end with this this morning. Let me end with this. I know I've probably gone a little bit long already. And there's been a lot of reasoning, a lot of arguing in this sermon this morning. So let me end with a story. Uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, book six, some of you know the silver chair. That's a great story. There's a little girl named Jill. And Jill climbs up a very high mountain in this, this uh, fantastic, mysterious land. And when she gets to the top of the mountain, she comes to a stream. And she's so thirsty. She wants desperately to drink from this delicious, clear, babbling stream. There's only one problem. There's a lion lying right next to the stream. And the lion says to her, are you thirsty? She says, yes. Well, he says, then come and drink. She's terrified because the lion is there. She doesn't want to come anywhere near the stream. Finally, she says to him, could you please leave? And then I'll go drink. And even in asking the question, she realizes the presumption of her request. She thinks, gosh, I might as well have asked this whole mountain to move for my own convenience. So she waits a little bit longer, and then she says to him, she says, if I, if I drink, will you promise not to do anything to me? He says, I make no such promises. So then she waits a little longer. She's still so thirsty. Finally, she says to him, she says, have you ever, you ever eaten little girls? And the lion says, well, I have... I've devoured the lives of girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms. And she says to him, well, then I guess I don't dare to come and to drink. And he says, well, then you will die. And she says, well, I will just have to go and look for another stream. And the lion looks at her and he says, there is no other stream. Friends, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we find ourselves troubled and wrestling with the question of how could there not be other ways? And yet, Jesus, isn't the thing that's so amazing the fact that there is a way? And the fact that you yourself were willing to be that way for us, Jesus, that you are the only God 
of any religion who would be willing to suffer for us because of how much you love us, Jesus, to think that you left your throne in heaven, you humbled yourself, you suffered, and you died because you did not want to spend eternity without us. Jesus, we know you make this claim to be the way and the truth and the life, not to be controversial, but because you want us to come in to the Father. You want us to have intimacy with the infinite one. You want us to have life with God. Jesus, you know that's what our hearts need. That's what we long for more than anything else. And so, Jesus, I pray that today, whatever reservations keep us back from the stream, that we would be willing to drink, to trust you, to believe you, to be our way, our truth, and our life. God, for those of us who've never taken that step, I pray, I pray that we would. For those who've taken that step, I pray that we would trust you and believe you enough that we'd be willing to share this life with those who don't know you yet. And I pray that we would do it, Jesus, in an inclusive, humble, loving way that is rooted in your grace for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.